I love the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. There's something enchanting about children exploring a hidden world in their fur coats, having tea with Mr. Tumnus, Turkish delight from a white witch, and encountering the mighty Aslan. In the story, Narnia is another realm, and most people are blissfully unaware of it. But for the children, the mysterious wardrobe became a portal to that other world. The last book of the Bible is called Revelation. It is like a portal that shows us another realm. As we peer into the book of Revelation, we get to see what's happening right now in heaven, and we get a glimpse of God's ultimate plan for the end of time. So, this final session of the Bible course will give us an overview of Revelation, so we can see the brilliant ending of the Bible story. Then in the second half, we will review our progress throughout the course and consider how we can take our next steps with the Bible. Welcome to session eight. Revelation and review. The word revelation comes from a Greek word apocalypse, which means unveiling. It's like curtains being drawn back to see what's on the other side. So let's introduce the book of Revelation and consider its setting, its style, and then the conclusion of the whole Bible story. Revelation is the last of the New Testament letters, written somewhere close to 90 AD. Now, by this time, Christians were being persecuted. John, the author, had been forced from his home and left on an island called Patmos. Other Christians faced far worse. They were put in amphitheatres with lions and bears, so crowds could watch them being torn apart for sport. So Revelation offers a vital perspective when we face tough times. John saw a door opening into heaven and a glorious throne. The Roman emperor may sit on the throne on earth, but in Revelation, we see the king of heaven. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus Christ, the sacrificial Lamb, rules on the throne of heaven. So Revelation says no matter what is happening on earth, Jesus is King. Now we also live in turbulent times, political instability, financial uncertainty, terrorist threats. Today, many Christians around the world are persecuted. So we also need to grasp these visions just as much today. Our daughter used to ask a cute question whenever we went to a new setting, who's the boss here? 
at her new school, in our new church. One time at dinner, who's the boss of our family? A rather awkward silence followed that question. And then at bedtime, she once asked me, so who's the boss of the world? And I replied, Jesus. Jesus is the boss. And she smiled, put her head down on the pillow and fell asleep. It was like she made a simple connection. Jesus is the boss of the world and he's our friend. We just pray to him. Now, whatever we're facing, this truth can give us a good night's sleep too. Jesus is our friend and he's the boss on the throne. The book of Revelation is a bit of a different style to the writings we've considered so far. It includes images and symbolism to help us engage with a realm that is quite literally out of this world. So here's a few things to bear in mind as we read it. Firstly, symbolic numbers. In Revelation, the number seven represents perfection or completion. Going back, of course, to Genesis, where God completed creation in seven days. So God's purposes are then described in sets of seven. Seven bowls of judgment, seven trumpets of warning, seven seals around a scroll. And that scroll represents God's plan for the world. In Revelation, only Jesus can unlock the seals, open the scroll and bring God's great plan to completion. Twelve is also symbolic. It was the number of tribes in the Old Testament and apostles in the New Testament. So in Revelation, we see 24 elders, representative leaders of all God's people, old and new. And later we see 144,000 people praising God. Why? Well, 12 times 12 is 144. And the word for a thousand in Greek is mega. So 144,000 refers to the vast number of all God's people, 12 from the Old Testament times 12 from the New Testament times a thousand. So the number is not a literal cap on spaces in heaven. Elsewhere, John says there were too many to count. The number is symbolic and it reminds us that when we're reading apocalyptic writings, some bits are not to be taken literally. Now, Revelation also includes some rather strange looking creatures. There are beasts, a terrifying red dragon, and also some monstrous hybrids, creatures that contain familiar concepts, but in bizarre combinations. For example, we know what a locust is, but have you ever heard of a locust wearing a crown with a human face, long hair and a scorpion's tail? These are seen in Revelation chapter 9, bringing a plague of God's judgment on the oppressors. Now, these apocalyptic images function a bit like political cartoons, exaggerating the features to make a point. And although these images may seem confusing or even a little bit disturbing, don't despair. The big idea of Revelation is obvious. I remember a university friend called James. He became a Christian and started reading the Bible. And when he reached Revelation, he summed up his experience this way. I don't get what some of it's on about, but I know we're going to win. That's the big idea of Revelation.
So having introduced the setting and style, let's now focus on Revelation as the conclusion to the whole Bible story. The final chapters give us a glimpse beyond where we are now in the 21st century and into eternity. We could summarise the end of Revelation with this simple phrase, out with the old and in with the new. Firstly then, we see God's judgment come upon this old creation, which is symbolised in Revelation as the city of Babylon. Woe, woe, O great city of Babylon, clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Now, remember how Babylon has featured in the Bible story. The Tower of Babel was an ancient reference in Genesis to Babylon. It was a symbol of human pride and rebellion against God. And then, of course, the exile to Babylon. The Babylonians destroyed the temple and took God's people captive. Well, now Babylon, a symbol of human pride and rebellion, is destroyed. The great city reduced to rubble in just one hour, leaving the merchants and traders who'd invested all their lives in it distraught. And though, of course, very different. The tragic events of 9-11, the sudden collapse of the Twin Towers in New York in just a couple of hours, this reminded our world this is a fragile place. Things that seem secure will not last forever. So Revelation says, look up. This world is passing away. Investing all your life in money and possessions is like building sandcastles by the seashore. When the tide comes in, it will all be gone. So let's live for the things that last. Let's seek first the kingdom of heaven. Now Revelation then finishes with a spectacular vision of new creation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Those who have personally trusted in God's King Jesus will inherit this future glory. And it includes three great features that complete the Bible story. Firstly, new creation. God is not just committed to saving souls, but to the whole cosmos. So John sees a vision of an Eden paradise being restored. You see, God made us humans to have our feet firmly planted on planet Earth. So that's our future. And the resurrection of Jesus guarantees a perfect physical body for us. There'll be no more pain, sickness or death. This is our sure and certain hope. So no matter how pretty you are or gym-toned you may be, or how frail or sick you may feel, you are nothing but a shadow of your future self. If you're a Christian, 
your best days lie ahead of you. And then secondly, a new Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the urban centre of the people of God. Now here in Revelation, God's people are seen coming down out of heaven like a new Jerusalem to populate this pristine world. And this new world population will be one family, a truly united nations. No more wars or racism or violence. Humanity will be one. I went to see the band U2 perform live a few years back. And when they sung their famous song, One, imagining humanity as a united family, the atmosphere was electric. Our world longs for lasting peace. And that's where the whole story is headed for God's people. And then thirdly, a new temple. In Revelation, the dimensions of this new Jerusalem are a perfect cube. Why? Well, that was the exact shape of the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, God's holy room. So in this vision of the end, the Holy of Holies has expanded to fill the whole cosmos. Therefore, John says, in my vision, I didn't see a temple. There's no need now for a separate building for God to live in. That was just temporary. Now the whole earth is full of God's glory. So this vision takes us right back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, in the final vision in Revelation, the tree of life reappears. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, and on either side was the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. One day soon, we exiles will arrive back home where we belong in a perfect relationship with God, paradise lost will be paradise regained. So the Bible turns full circle. We started with a perfect world at the tree of life and the story finishes in a perfect world back with the tree of life. But of course, only because in the middle is the tree of death. As Christ died on the wooden cross, he took our curses in this fallen world so that we could be blessed with new creation. He took our hell so we could enter heaven. He was shut out so we could come home. It's all because of Jesus. And when we finally arrive home, our heavenly father will be waiting for us. Revelation envisages this climactic moment. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So this is how the Bible story ends. It really will be happily ever after. So the book of Revelation then, is giving us a glimpse of the end before we get there. In sporting terms, it's like we get to hear the final score before the final whistle. I sometimes watch Match of the Day, which shows football highlights from matches that have already finished. And one time I watched with a friend who supported the same team as myself. But I'd already had a quick look at the final score. I knew that our team won. And that completely changed my experience of the game. 
My friend was anxious. When our team went behind, he even got angry with the referee. But I had peace. In the end, I knew it was all going to be okay. Revelation announces the final score before the final whistle. In the end, God will put all wrongs right. Good will triumph over evil and we will enjoy a perfect creation. And with this great hope ahead of us, Revelation finishes. Indeed, the whole Bible finishes with a simple promise from Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon. In his last Narnia book, C.S. Lewis finishes the story with all the followers of Aslan entering into a new earth and a new heaven. The story closes with these words. For them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. By the end of the Bible story, we have only just arrived at the beginning of the real story. This is not the end or even the beginning of the end. It is simply the end of the beginning. So in our groups, let's consider the final chapters of Revelation that give us a glimpse of the amazing adventure that lies ahead. a 16-year-old Welsh girl called Mary Jones set out on foot from her home and walked 26 miles over rugged terrain to the town of Bala to get hold of this. Now why? Well this is the Bible in Welsh and from a young age Mary longed to have her own copy so she worked extra hard to save up money. Then, when she heard that a Welsh minister called Thomas Charles had Bibles for sale, she walked a marathon barefoot to buy one. Here you can see where Mary wrote her name and a simple prayer, Lord, give me grace. Thomas Charles was so moved by Mary's desire for a Bible that with others he set up the British and Foreign Bible Society. Ever since, Bible Society has translated and distributed copies of the Bible all across the world. Now the Bible is instantly available, but that doesn't make it any less valuable. It's still the most precious item in our possession. So let's not leave it on the shelf. Let's be determined to read it and apply it to our lives on a daily basis. As we reach the end of the Bible course, let's summarize what we've learnt and consider our next steps with the Bible. My biggest hope is that as we finish this course, we have a new confidence to read the Bible for ourselves. Remember the old proverb, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, you can feed him for a lifetime. This course has been about teaching us to fish so we can feed on God's word every day.
Now, one of the keys has been to see the big picture of the whole Bible story and how the individual pieces fall into place. Now we have this storyline as a framework upon which we can plot all the main events and books and characters. So for the last time, let's remind ourselves of the whole story. And as we go through, why not try drawing this line in your manual for yourself? In the beginning, God created a perfect world symbolized by this tree of life. As things go wrong, God calls Abraham's family to bring hope back to the world. And through Joseph and his technicolor dream coat, Israel end up enslaved down in Egypt for 400 years. So God steps in and rescues them through the Exodus, bringing them into the promised land. Then various judges and kings rule over Israel. But the nation soon divides in two. And despite warnings from the prophets, Israel is conquered and deported. In exile, they lament their loss. But soon, they get to return and rebuild, and then they wait. Finally, the promised Messiah comes. Jesus is born. He lives a stunning life, dies on a Roman cross, and is raised back to life. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower God's people to bring hope back to the world. The last book of the Bible shows how the story will end. Back at the tree of life, paradise lost is regained. So, how did you get on drawing it? Hopefully we've got it for ourselves now and can use this storyline framework to place the books of the Bible in their context. And we've always got the Bible course manual to refresh our memories. To help us interpret the Bible, we've been asking two basic questions, what and now what? So I want to remind us of these two and also insert a third question, so what? Let me explain. Our first question is what? What did this passage mean back there and then? We need to start by considering the original setting. Remember the three keys to interpretation are context, context, and context. If you take a text out of context, you're left with a con. My first sermon was on one of Jesus's parables about a wedding where bridesmaids were waiting for the groom's arrival. Some of them ran out of oil for their lamps, but the wise bridesmaids wouldn't share their oil. So the others had to go and buy more, and while they were gone, the groom arrived and they missed the party. Now, Jesus's point in context was about being prepared for his arrival. But my sermon ignored the context and concluded, if you've got something valuable, Jesus says, don't share it, keep it to yourself. Now, in my defense, I was seven years old at the time and preaching at a special service for just our family. And if you ask my sisters, they would tell you that I practiced what I preached and rarely shared anything. It's vital that we put the text in context by considering questions like, when was the passage written? Who were the original readers? 
And what did this mean to them? Now, to help, we can make use of some great resources like study Bibles and Bible commentaries to get background information. So why not have a look at the back of the manual for some recommended resources that can really help us to put the text in context. So having asked our first question, what? I want to encourage us to now ask a further question, so what? So what does this passage mean in the light of Jesus? You see, how a passage applies to us depends on where it comes in the Bible story, before or after Jesus, Old Testament or New Testament. Now here's a quick summary of some coaching tips that can really help us answer the question, so what does this passage mean in the light of Jesus? Firstly, the New Testament is our chapter of the story. If a passage is located BC, it's part of the Old Covenant, and that's not our chapter. We're not living in the wilderness or worshipping at the temple. Though that's all part of the same story, it's not our chapter. Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant and replaced it with a New Covenant. Now faith is the only condition for becoming God's people. So for any passage, we should ask, is this Old Covenant or New Covenant, and how might that affect the way it applies to us? And then secondly, Jesus was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament anticipated the arrival of Jesus in several ways. Think of it like a person's shadow appearing before they themselves come round the corner. In the Old Testament, Jesus was foreshadowed by, well, some key characters like Joseph, who down in Egypt provided salvation for the whole world. Like Moses, who in the wilderness mediated a relationship between God and the people. Like Boaz, who redeemed the Gentile Ruth, just as Jesus redeems us. Like David, who defeated Goliath and brought victory to God's people. Jesus was foreshadowed by these key characters and key events, like the Exodus. Key prophecies that predicted his birth and his death. So as the light shines on Jesus in the New Testament, it casts his shadow back into the Old Testament. So we need to read the whole Bible in the light of Jesus. Now after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to two disciples who assumed he was still dead. And to reveal himself, he gave them a sort of Bible course. He went through the whole of the Old Testament, showing that it all pointed to him. And by the time he'd finished, their eyes were opened and their hearts were burning with fresh passion. That's what happens when we read the whole Bible in the light of Jesus. It comes alive. And that's why we should ask this second question, so what? So what does this passage mean in the light of Jesus? What, so what, and finally, now what? Now, what does this passage mean for my life today? Jesus told a story about two builders. One built a house really quickly, but it was on sand. And when the storm came, it caved in and was washed away. But the other built on solid rock. It survived the storm and stood tall. 
Crucially, both builders heard Jesus' teaching. The difference was that only one applied it to the way they actually lived. The goal of reading the Bible is to apply it to our lives. Then we'll have a rock-solid foundation through the storms of life. One of the New Testament letters, called James, puts it this way. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. For if anyone is a hearer of the word but not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. But he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. Looking in a mirror and seeing a bad hair day is useless unless we do something about it. As we read the Bible, it shows us things about ourselves that need to change. So let's take action and change them. You may find it helpful to have a notebook next to you as you read the Bible. You can then jot down a verse that stands out, summarize what you think God is saying, and then consider, now what will I do about it? So as we read the Bible, let's remember to ask three vital questions. What? What did the passage mean in its context? So what? So what does it mean in the light of Jesus? And now what? Now what does it mean for my life today? So as we move on from the Bible course, let's each identify our next step with the Bible. Wherever you're at, the good news is the Bible has a deep end and a shallow end. As one former archbishop put it, in the Bible, a child can paddle and an elephant can swim. So if you still feel a bit new to the Bible, you can paddle in a bit further. And if you have a PhD in theology, there's plenty more water to swim in. So how about choosing one of the following ideas as a next step? You could set out to read the whole Bible in one year. You could study your way through one book of the Bible in more detail, perhaps Romans. You could try memorising key scriptures and meditating on them. You could start a Bible book club with some friends. Or you could run the Bible course again and now invite others to experience it. There's a next step for everyone. We are so fortunate to have great resources at our fingertips. But the real challenge is making the Bible a priority on a daily basis. A recent survey showed that regular Bible engagement was the most catalytic influence for spiritual growth. More significant than church attendance, doing a theology course or listening to Christian music was building the Bible into everyday life. Now I know for our family it's been a challenge to build the Bible into our routines. My wife and I read the Bible together with a cup of tea first thing in the morning and then over breakfast we read a Bible story with our children and pray together as a family. It's such a great setup for the day and a bit like the meals that we eat. Sometimes it's really memorable other times, by the end of the day, you've forgotten what you had for lunch. But if you get it in you, it always does you good. Ultimately, 
there are two ways to do life. Either we put the small stuff in first, hobbies, TV, social media, shopping, and all the other small stuff that can so easily fill up our lives. We start with the small stuff, and then we find we've got no room left for the big stuff, reading the Bible, and praying, and getting to church. Even though we believe it's all really important, it just never quite seems to fit in. A friend of mine summed it up really well. He said, I read the Bible almost every day, almost on Monday, almost on Tuesday, almost on Wednesday. But the better way to do life is to put the big stuff in first. I will read the Bible first thing and make it a priority. I will pray. I will get to church. And then, surprisingly, all the small stuff fits in after all. It's all about priorities. So let's put the Bible in first place in our lives on a daily basis. Psalm 1 gives a beautiful picture of a person who prioritises God's word every day. They are like a tree planted by a river, yielding fruit in every season and prospering. And when we make the Bible our priority, it's like planting ourselves by a life-giving stream. Even when there's drought and life is tough, we can flourish in every season. So as we finish the Bible course, let's be determined to root ourselves in God's word. Right now, let's decide what is my next step with the Bible. And let's declare that commitment openly so we can support each other. Let's not be hearers of the word only. Let's live it. Amen.